A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hola, and welcome to a big interview from the vault. Look, all right, no fooling around. We asked our socios, our members, our supporters at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter to pick their favourite from season two of this long running and I have to say much loved show. You're about to hear one of the interviews they picked as the best from a selection which included international footballers representing Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Bulgaria, Argentina, England, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Here's what I had to say about this one when we recorded during season 2016-2017. Luca Viali is a guy I've had the privilege of knowing since just before he captained Juventus to the 1996 Champions League final. Luca dissects his memorable Scudetto win with Sampdoria, reflects on losing the 1992 European Cup final to Cruyff's dream team at Wembley. We talk about when we first met after I was sent to Turin to find out the secrets of a Juventus side who had just destroyed Rangers in the Champions League. Luca takes us into a winning culture at the heart of that extraordinary era in Turin. Then, the move to Chelsea, where he was both player and manager. All the big characters pop up in some of his brilliant anecdotes, told with his typical articulacy, character, fun, wit. Ranieri's there, Di Canio, Lippi, Ferguson. Sit back and enjoy this fascinating conversation with Gianluca Viali. So, um, Luca, everybody's got the misfortune to have to listen to me every two weeks on the big interview knows that I get quite bubbly, quite excited about interviews like this. There are very few that I've been as excited about as this one, but you were my favourite player of the 90s by a long way. I was lucky enough to meet you during the 90s. And here we are back again. So for me, this is like heaven, it's paradise. When you look back on that Sampdoria era, now when not only Italian football has changed, but Samp has, has changed beyond all recognition. The only title in their history was one there. You, you won so many cups, you won so many trophies. You played a brand of football which was gorgeous to watch. Sam, for their iconography, for the strip, for the way in which you played, for that combination of everything that you and Mancini brought to it, Fjerkovod, you know, a player to adore. The guy who I think hasn't been spoken about enough in this country is probably Boskov. Mm. I don't know what you think of him. I know that he was a mix of intensity, discipline, eccentricity, dedication to attack, I think. 
what kind of impact did Boscov have on you? What do you remember? What would you tell people who want to understand that coach who was so important to Sampdoria? Tell us about him. Well, I think he's one, it was the kind of, um, or manager that you don't have. It's more like uh, the old-fashioned uh, English manager. Yeah. Sort of like a, the boss, but also a father figure, someone with great communication skills, someone incredibly knowledgeable because he was a citizen of the world. He had been in Holland, he has been in Spain, he grew up in Yugoslavia, and in Italy he could speak uh, five or six different languages. He had a vast, incredibly vast experience. And for us, it was just uh, perfect because... Um, we knew we were a good side, but we didn't really have the confidence. And um, I think that um, as well as all his tactical knowledge, he installed in us a huge amount of confidence. He made us believe that we could win the league, we could win the European Cups, we could win the Champions League. So really, I believe and our confidence skyrocketed when, when Boscov arrived at, at, at Sampdoria. And for me in particular, it was like a father figure. He knew me so well. He was also a great psychologist. And uh, he could sit uh, at dinner, for example, on a different table, just looking at the players having supper. He could tell whether two players were not getting on very well, whether one player had a, had a problem with his girlfriend, <laughs> another player was particularly stressed out or, or was feeling too much pressure thinking about the game the next. So it was fantastic from that sense. And from a tactical point of view, it just instead of working on our, our defects, he just wanted to improve our qualities, if you know what I mean. So he wasn't spending too much time telling us what we were doing wrong. It was just telling most of the time, telling us what we were doing right and encourage us to do even better. This isn't sense. flattery, but I imagine that if he were here today, he would say that you were his, a gift to him. Apart from your ability, your attitude to work, your intensity every day, your desire to win and change and improve, you can speak objectively about yourself. I know you can. You must have been a gift to him. Well, I tried to do my part in the best possible way, and I... You know, the secret was Bosco, but it was also this incredible sense of belonging that every player had at Sampdoria. I mean, we were going to sleep with the pyjama, with the Sampdoria. Uh, strip color, on. Strip on. Uh, and meaning that we were in love with the club, we were in love with the owner and the organisation, the structure, the fans. We wanted to be there and we wanted to take the club to the next level to the very, very top. So for us, it was like a mission. And therefore, we were 100% dedicated to that cause and we were working together for a team objective. We weren't thinking about ourselves, we were thinking about the team. You're a very analytical man, judged by how you, you speak about football, how you coached, what you say on television, your fantastic book with Gabriel, that Gabriel helped you write. When you look back at what you've just described, was it just a fluke that that happened? wasn't only Boscov, if it wasn't a fluke, how on earth do you get that combination of all the right elements at the one time if it's not a fluke? Where, were, where was the planning? What were the elements? Look well, at? the element was just one person, the owner, Paolo Bantovani, one of the greatest chairman or, or club owners in the history of Italian football, in my opinion. He had a dream. He wanted to challenge the status quo mm -hmm. and, and prove that you could win something, the Italian Championship, for example, the Serie A, without being a financial powerhouse. And um, this is how he sold us the Sampdoria dream. 
So when I first met him, he didn't tell me what he wanted to do or how he wanted to do it. The first thing he told me was why he wanted to do it. He said, I want to challenge the status quo and prove that we can do it. And that was just perfect. I want to be on board. I like you, I like your dream, and I want to be part of it. And I remember just, you know, sometimes going to the um, head office to collect our salary. And that was an opportunity for us to um, meet the president and go walk into his office and, and just have a chat with him. And I remember just leaving his office feeling like I could walk on water because that's how he made me feel. And the same goes with everybody else at the club. So that's why it was easier whenever we had the opportunity to leave the club and go to a potentially bigger club like AC Milan or Juventus just to turn them down because we wanted to complete our job at Sampdoria. Barcelona. Cup winners, cup final in Switzerland. Wembley. A moment which really changed Britain a great deal because irrespective of of maybe Champions League's finals since then have become still more spectacular. It It was a game of a lot of beautiful football, good chances elegant flowing football at a time when fan misbehaviour in Britain was bad. European football, we'd watched a lot of Catanaccio on television for some years before. To me, that 92 final, disappointing as it was for you, was a big breakthrough Mm. for people in Britain saying, "Okay, that's how football should be played. But those were two really frustrating, even for a man who won all the European, you won all the UEFA trophies. Those two experiences, could you draw a positive from them? Are they still sore? Well, First occasion was when we played them in, uh, in Bern. In Bern, 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 yeah, Bern. Yeah, yeah. And it was the uh, Cup Winners' Cup final, and I played, I was injured. I pulled my hamstring oh. a couple of weeks before with uh, the national team, stupidly, because I wanted to play in a friendly match. I wasn't 100% right. I played anyway. I pulled my hamstring for the first time, didn't know how to deal with that. So I got to the final thinking that I was reasonably fit, but then during the warm-up, I put my house in again. I went back into the dressing room, I spoke to Boshkov, and I said, look, I'm not fit. And he said to me, look, don't you worry, you just go on the pitch, and all the defenders, once they see you, they will be terrified. So even if you're not fit, we need you in the side. Well, guess what? They weren't that terrified when they saw me just you know, limping on the pitch for 90 minutes. And we lost 2-0. Mm. Gary Lineker was part of that yeah, side. Yeah. Johan Cruyff was the manager. And I remember after the match, back in the hotel, some of the senior players, the likes of Cerezo, Dosena, I remember them thinking that there was you know, one in a lifetime opportunity. And we missed it. Little did they know that a year later, we were back in the final, Cup Winners' Cup, and got above versus Anderlecht, and we won it. I need to do this again. Yeah. Who, who scored? <laughs> got, I, it's a matter of I record. I happened to score twice. No. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> thank you very much. So, yes, and it's quite funny because I grew up with um, you know, many idols, but probably one of the biggest was, was Jan Cruyff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember watching this movie made by an Italian uh, journalist called The Prophet of Gaul. Uh, with Johan Cruyff, and I was in love with Johan Cruyff, and so it was mentioned that side. They took the Cup Winners' Cup away from us, and also the Champions League final away from us. And the Champions League final was a huge regret for me, because it was my last match with Sampdoria. I wanted to leave the club with a huge present for the fans. I had my opportunities during the match. I missed them, then signed for Juventus. 
and I was very emotional. So for four years after that final, I remember every now and then waking up at night with nightmares. But that probably gave me the strength and the desire and the motivation to win it with Juventus four years later. And when I won it with Juventus, obviously my thoughts were back to the Sampdoria fans, my teammates, because they somehow made me able to do a better job second time round. I can only say I remember the, the, the thrill of, of meeting you when my editor sent me over to see why Juventus could not just outplay Rangers, but outmuscle them and outwork them. And we weren't used to pressing. And that was one of the many emblems of that Lippi Juventus side, with whether it was you and Ravanelli or Del Piero, you and Ravanelli Padovano or, or Attilio, whoever it might be. And I remember going to the Stadio Comunale, the old Juventus stadium, which has now been reworked, but you were in the Dele Alpi then playing competitively and going into the Comunale and saying to the kind press officer who took me over to Juventus, Daniele Boaglia, we must name him, a good man, can I interview somebody who'd be willing to talk to me? And he said, well, listen, we'll do it after training. So I came and I watched the morning training and it was fascinating and it was muddy and it was intricate and watched and saw things that I'd never seen before. And I said, interview now, Daniele? He said, yeah, when training's finished. I just watched it finished. There was lunch, a rest, and then back for a session, which maybe finished at 7.38, double training, which people now are accustomed to. People talk about this. I don't think in Britain there was any real concept of double training or why it happened. And then this fella in this 700-pound pinstripe three-piece suit came into a little abandoned dressing room and between us, my pigeon English and you're very fluent Italian, we worked at an interview what kind of club was I seeing then? What kind of atmosphere was I seeing there? Because to me, it struck me as, as an extraordinary, industrious, intense, hard-working place that reeked of success mm. when I went to watch you. Well, I, I feel that uh, the key to be successful is the kind of culture that you create in your sport organisation. And football clubs are organisations where there should be a specific culture, depending on what the owners and what the people want. Juventus, the claim is that you never give up and you go on until the final whistle and beyond. And um, you must prepare in order to be able to carry this sort of claim on your shoulder. And um, therefore, you need to be humble when you play and respect your position, but you need to be, you need to do it with pride and you need to be aggressive. So that's the culture. And you need to prepare properly. And therefore, we were probably the best at preparing ourselves. You mentioned about training sessions. To wear the Juventus shirt is an honour, but it's also <laughs> something quite... It's heavy, it's very heavy. It's been a privilege for me, and during the four years I was at Juventus, I did my very best in order to make sure that I was fulfilling all the expectations. And I was deserving to be the captain. So it's, it's infectious. And um, that's what you breathe and, and live when you get to a club like, like Juventus. And um, so everybody behaves the same way. Uh, they turn up, they see uh, you know, everybody doing it, and they just do the same thing. You know, training twice a day, three times a day. I remember we had a gym. It was probably the best gym that any football club had in, in Italy. And uh, we had our own individual uh, programs. Mm -hmm. So we were sort of encouraged to do our little uh, training program before the first training session in the morning. So training session starts at 10 o'clock. And then you had somebody turning up, going to the gym at 9 o'clock, 
doing an hour training by themselves and then join the normal training session. And there was like, the mentality was as such that it was like a, a competition on who would turn up earlier. And so opening the gym and finding one of your colleagues already there was a bit disappointing. So honestly, <laughs> at some point, you know, there was such a competition that I remember turning up at quarter to seven and opening the door of the gym thinking, no way, this time I'm going to be the first. And Delivia was already there looking at me, smiling, saying, oh, I'm bad luck. And he was probably there from 6.30 in the morning. So it was that intense, that competitive. And uh, it was just fantastic. And Marcello Lippi was my messiah. He was a friend to start with. And then when he joined the club, said, I wanted to go back to Sampdoria after a couple of years Juventus. And he just joined the club and he said to me, Luca, you know, I've just arrived here. I want to be successful. I need you to be on my side and I want you to stay. And, you know, when a manager speaks to you like that, <laughs> is that not to... He's selling you a dream exactly, again. Exactly, exactly. Well, the That's exactly Mantovani, right. I don't know enough about him and it's a big loss for me as a lover of football, as a student of football. Football played the right way. And, and in that little experience I had because we came back, what you taught us, what Ventroni taught us in our first visit... The Celtic manager Tommy Byrne said, please take us back. So we sat down over a table. It was January by then and the build-up was coming. You knew you, were, you had already drawn Real Madrid in the quarterfinals of the European Cup. And I remember in the middle of a lunch where Boalia, Ventroni, Tommy Burns and I were sitting with your Messiah. He didn't need to talk about this and maybe everybody knew it in Italy that when he played for Samp, it was in the days of Catanaccio, Catanaccio, pure. And he told me, and maybe he was being romantic, Luca, but... I love to believe. He said that he began to swear to himself, when I'm a coach, this is what we're going to do. We're going to attack. Not all out attack, like maybe Osvaldo did at Spurs, but we're going to press, we're going to go high up, we're going to take this game to them all the time. Yes. That's what I saw. That's what yeah. we all saw when we watched you, right? Yeah, no, I, I would say that... He fulfilled you, his promise. Yeah, you, you summed up very much his philosophy of football as a coach. I remember him telling us before the match one thing all the time, and that was we take control of the game. We decide the pace of the game and we do what we want with it. And therefore, we felt like our duty was to really be on top of our opponents and being able to defend when we wanted and then play counter-attacking football or to put them under pressure. And so it was the perfect mentality. He made us feel in control. And um, I remember just, I would say, 99 nine of, uh, out of 100 uh, times just walking down the tunnel and, you know, you, you went there those uh, 30 seconds, a minute, where you wait for the opponents and the referee and then you get ready to walk out on the pitch and you have a glance at your opponents. I remember looking at them thinking, I'm not scared. You must be scared. Mm-hmm. And that was like a great feeling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, feeling like I'm better than you. If I work hard enough, mm-hmm. I would beat you. Mm-hmm. You know, that is the manager's job. Once the manager managed to instill that kind of mentality in the player's mind, then you're halfway there. Was the greatest trident in that Juventus era you and Alex and Ravanelli, or was it with Italio, or was it with Padovano? For you. And Baggio. Baggio, the first season. Baggio before Alex. Yes, Baggio oh, before. Then if it's a 4-3-3 for yes. Lippi Juventus, then which of the three to you was the most satisfying, the most powerful, the greatest? Of the... Of those potential front threes. Well, it, it, did you call, was it called the Tridente then? The Tridente, yeah. Well, then, the okay. Tr- yeah, very good, by the way. Uh, Gracias. 
I don't know. I think we were always very effective because um, we had, uh, in a way, we were believer in uh, that kind of mentality that uh, Marcello Lippi wanted us to. So we were doing it, not just for the sake of it, because we believed that was right, and we were really working hard for each other, we were working hard for the team, we were not sort of following individual uh, um, yeah. success. We, our main priority was to make the team successful. So whether it was Baggio or Del Piero or Ravanelli, we were all trying our best to work out for the team and be effective, of course, uh, but the team was our main priority. So we ran our socks yeah. off, as you say. He did. For the team. Well, did he call it pressing then? How did he describe that? Because this was our first real... Maybe pressing existed forever. I don't want to sound stupid. But we couldn't see it. We couldn't learn from the 50s or the 60s because there wasn't enough television coverage. But we saw you pressing. You said in the tunnel, you should be scared of me because we're going to... The defenders, it must have been a nightmare playing against yes. you. Because if you tried to bring the ball out or make a pass, you were on them and on them and on them. And then when you won the ball, you all did things quickly and efficiently with the ball. Did, did Lippi call it pressing? What did you, yes. How did you describe it? Uh, how did you work on well, it? Well, technically, what, you know, managers tend to say that um, it's uh, pressing. Pressure is when a player does it individually. Mm -hmm. Pressing is when a number of players do it all together, which becomes even more effective. Otherwise, you might run the risk of running around like a lunatic and you never get the ball. But when you do it at the right time, in the right place on the pitch, uh, all together, it becomes tremendously effective. And I think that also what a manager strives for is to find the right balance uh, with your side so that you need to convince the strikers and the attackers to help the rest of the team to defend, and then you need to convince the defenders mm -hmm. when you get the ball to be the first attacker. Mm -hmm. So if defenders are prepared to do it for the strikers and the strikers are prepared to do the opposite work for the defenders, then you are very close to having a very successful side. Because sometimes defenders just want, don't want to concede, but when they get the ball, they don't want to know, so they just kick it forward, and there's not enough quality for the strikers to make those balls count. And the other way around, strikers finish the action, the defensive action, you know, they turn their back to the, the play and they don't help the defenders. And then you become a bit more vulnerable. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So Lippi's ability of convincing us that we had to work for each other with the ball and without the ball made us a very balanced team in both phases. And um, the only way you can play with three strikers, I think unless you have Suarez, Messi and Neymar. So play with three strikers without affecting the balance of the side mm-hmm. is if the three strikers work extremely hard mm-hmm. and they are the first defenders when the opponents at the ball, which is what we did. We took pride in getting and winning the ball back from the defenders and uh, we wanted to run more than the defenders. We wanted to make it physical as well as mental. And we came on top most of the time. Because then if the first wave of pressing is successful, it'll be like a, a pinball. Because you'll win it, the ball will come away, the midfield will pick it up, they must be positionally clever behind you, and then immediately you've won it and the ball's gone free. In three, four seconds, if you've won it well enough and, the, and your midfield is in the right position, you're going to be giving it back and asked to do something clever with it. Yes. So who, who were the three behind you? We had um, Antonio Conte, Didier Deschamps, and Paolo Sosa. <laughs> So, you know, one is managing Chelsea, Deschamps is managing France, Paulo Sosa will manage Portugal one day and is now managing Fiorentina, you know, very well. So, three guys with brain, uh, heart and legs and football skills. And therefore, you know, we were, in a way, very well guided because they were behind us. So, go, 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 stay, stay, stay. You're always talking? Absolutely. The duty was to communicate. It wasn't, you know, you couldn't afford being shy or timid. Everybody had to, you know, help each other and, and speak and shout. There was a desire to win the European Cup. You yeah. beat Real Madrid, you beat yes. Nantes in an incredibly tough away. Nantes, the side that people will forget, I'm sure. What a great side they were. Yes. With Loco, I think, and Pedro, and, and just super, super team. And the, I think you scored in the return leg, or the, the leg in France, but they were a, a tough rival. Then you beat... Van Hal's very talented, very entertaining Ajax side. If you can pick an anecdote or a memory out of the, the three games that take you to the final, beating Real Madrid, beating Nantes, and then beating uh, Ajax on penalties, what stays with you now? What gives you the shiver down your spine? Well, I, I, I can think of two things. Uh, first of all, just before we played Real Madrid in the second leg of the quarterfinal, after losing 1-0 at the Bernabeu, we were in, um, in the hotel. We spent five days in the hotel prior to the match because Marcello thought that the 
we were not 100% concentrated. Wow. Well, I, I think it was just an excuse. I thought maybe it was just looking for an excuse to get us together and, you know, spend five, five days focusing on what was a very important match, obviously. And I remember speaking to the managing director of Juventus in my hotel room, I think a couple of days before the match. Uh, my contract was going to run out at the end of the season and didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to lead Juventus and come to the Premiership. But obviously it would be nice if Juventus had offered me a, <laughs> a new contract. Mm. Anyway, he said to me, look, we want to keep you, all right? So don't worry, and um, we are prepared to offer you a fifth of what you're earning right now, which was a very nice way to say to me... Ciao. <laughs> yeah, ciao. At least he didn't do it before a very important match. <laughs> exactly. So I remember actually crying yeah. after the match, and it was not joy, it was more like relief, and yeah. uh, because that's how you perceive the wins in Italy. They're not joys, they're relief, because you know, wow... <laughs> <laughs> this is gone. Anyway, I was stressed out. I was angry, mm. but I was super motivated to show them and prove them that I was would been been a big mistake to let me go. And we beat Real Madrid two 0 and we went through to the quarter semi final. And then I remember the five days we spent in Rome before the final, and it was the most difficult match for me to prepare from a mental point of view because I knew it was going to be the last one with Juventus the second Champions League final, probably my final chance, because at that time, Champions League was very special. In order to win it, it took you two years to win it. You had to win the prem- uh, your t- uh, local title first and then win the championship. There was no second or third or fourth place like now and you're playing the Champions League. So it was really difficult. It was one-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew it was going to be the last one. I knew I'd lost it with Sampdoria before. I couldn't have bear losing it again. So it was very difficult. These were nerves or emotion nerves. or... Everything together, yeah. And then I had cramps during the match as well, which I never had. Which comes from t- exactly. mental tension. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Because I basically started the match in Rome feeling that I'd already played three matches. So it was really mentally and physically difficult. You win it. Eventually. <laughs> On penalties? On penalties. You didn't take one, which was a very good idea, if you're cramps. No, I didn't take one, even though... We only took four, and nobody knows who was the fifth one. Ah, <laughs> I, I accept my mistake. But the fifth one was actually the Piero. Ah. It would have been the fifth one. I would have been the sixth one, which most of the time is the most difficult. Very high pressure. <laughs> no, but I remember Marcello Lippi, after the match, I was lying on the floor. I was incredibly tired, and he asked me whether I want to take the penalty. And I said, look, Marcello, if you need me to take it, I will. But if you find five crazy guys that want to take it, <laughs> then I'll sort of I'll watch them, you know, happily take those penalties. And why did I do that? I could have been selfish and say, OK, I just need this adrenaline rush when you take a penalty, whether you miss it or you score it. It's something that you will remember for the rest of your life. You know, those final few metres when you've got the goalkeeper, the fence. And... But the last two penalties I'd taken in Rome, one with the national team during the World Cup okay, in 1990, yeah. I missed, I hit the post. Another one, I brought my left foot taking a penalty versus Rome. Oh, I so I also wasn't probably in the right frame of mind because I was feeling so much pressure. I think I, I would have killed myself if I'd taken a penalty, missed it, and if we had lost the Champions League final. So I said to Michelle, if you need me, I will. 
but otherwise just you know it's the perfect answer because it can be good and tactical to say no as well as to say yes yeah people feel like you are not accepting responsibility i think it's about what is good for the team that's the way I want to say it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just an easy it. way to explain it. I love it, it and respect I didn't it. have the boss. No, 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 no. I no. had the boss. Because you've, you've, you've begun to make a difference between an Italian mentality and a British mentality because we are troops. We're soldiers. <laughs> so if duty calls, we answer whether it's the right thing to do or not. To disengage the brain, march forward. Yes. Different for the Italian. You, we both agree without going into it. The Italian mentality is much no. different to this. Absolutely. We want you to show us first how to do it and then we do it. This question from Lorenzo, Amor- Lorenzo Amoruso. <laughs> really? And David McFadden and Des Roach and Robert Fulton and Scott Meekin and Kenny Martin. So by now, listening to some of the names, you should know where we're going. They want to know, now I know, but they want to know, were you really close to signing for Rangers or Celtic or was it just talk in the media? I was really close because um, when I knew I was going to leave Juventus, um, I had an agent that was looking around on my behalf because I didn't want to get distracted. My target, my objective was to win the Champions League. So I wanted to be focused and I wanted someone else. And that was the first time I had an agent. Anyway, it looked as if uh, Arsenal didn't want to sign me because they wanted a British sort of side. Uh, I don't remember the name of the manager. Uh, David Platt was there playing. It was an English manager. I think. Or Arsene yeah. Wenger? No, no. When did Wenger no, come? No, Wenger came in 96. So, so Bruce Rea. Exactly. Then I, you know, someone spoke to Chelsea and Glenn Hoddle was the manager. Mark Hughes was already in the side. He was 32 and so they wanted, yes, a new striker, but they wanted someone to play with Mark Hughes and younger. Mm-hmm. Don't think we spoke to Tottenham, but uh, anyway, it looked as if nobody, you know, no London clubs wanted me. So Glasgow became an option because, obviously, you know, Champions League, big club in Scotland, Glasgow, Edinburgh, very nice places to live. And so I met Walter Smith and David... David Murray. Murray, yeah. the owner. Yeah. We met in Turin and um, we had a long chat about football and the way that Walter wanted the team to play and what would have been my role inside and... And we started discussing about money, negotiating. And then uh, Glenn Hoddle went from being the Chelsea manager to manage the national team. So Ruth Hooley took over and he didn't say it like Glenn Hoddle, so he didn't have a problem in me and Sparky playing together up front, even though we were both 32. So he called me up and he said, would you like to join me at Chelsea? And for me, that was my you know, first option. So I said, yes. And then we spoke to Glasgow Rangers and I explained the situation and they understood and, uh, uh, because we had not shaken hands yet by then. So I left Turin and I joined Chelsea. But when the road comes and you have two paths, in all honesty, when that, that call from Rudy, which must have been a surprise to you because... It's what I wanted. It's what I wanted. So for me, it was... But you and he had never been so close in Italy... The phone call would have been a surprise, or were you friends, or...? No, well, we knew each other. We had been on holiday together by chance once, and uh, we had played against each other many, many times in Italy. I think he liked me as a player, and he thought that being an Italian, I could have helped him to, in a way, transform the club Mm -hmm. into a club with... uh, 
sort of a European structure, European organisation and European mentality, or at least make it the best possible combination between the British mentality and the continental mentality. So I remember I was in Alessandria with my masseur. I got the phone call and uh, I was obviously extremely happy because... But I'm not sure whether that was the right decision or not. It was what I wanted, so it was good for me. What what Chelsea did you find? Well, I was kind of shocked when I first arrived because... Uh, People won't I mean, know why. Well, People won't understand why. Training facilities compared to what we had in Italy and the fact that we had to train and leave the training ground by 1 o'clock because at 1.30 we had university students coming in and occupying our facilities and we couldn't train twice a day. We had two days off a week, which was <laughs> incredible from my point of view. And... You know, even looking at some of the British players under the shower and seeing them quite unfit, it was a shock for me. But I had to adapt and uh, I had to help the club to make changes and to become a better club, which is what I tried to do. What are your happiest memories of the time? Well, initially I've got to say that London made me happy, but um, from a footballing point of view, I wasn't entirely happy. I wasn't 100% happy. Root signed Gianfranco Zola as well. Uh, later on with the idea to play the three of us up front with Sparky and myself and Gianfranco behind us. But then uh, it was quite obvious that um, we couldn't handle that. The team was not built in a way to support three strikers. So he had to make a decision and he rightly decided to go back to 4-4-2. And of course Gianfranco and Sparky were playing ever so well together. So I was sitting on the bench most of the time. My relationship with the manager deteriorated and then he called me a jinx and, uh, because every time... I, I didn't know playing, that. He was saying, look, every time I play Viali, we are losing. So, <laughs> so for me, that was quite extremely annoying. And so there was a total breakdown in our relationship and therefore I thought about leaving at some stage. I wanted to go and, and play football because I was still very hungry. I wanted to play football. And I wanted to work with somebody that um, trusted me, confident in me, yeah. and uh, that wasn't the case with Rude. W- so. Was this the time when Celtic became an option? Yes, Celtic became an option. Uh, Crystal Palace as well. Uh-huh. Sort of somebody was talking to, with a few clubs. And then, all of a sudden, Chelsea made a decision to fire Rude, the manager, and asked me to become player manager. So, obviously, uh, everything changed almost overnight. Part of the decision irrespective of what Colin Hutchinson and Ken Bates have said about Rude's contract negotiations and net and gross and all this kind of nonsense, part of their decision must have been we don't want to lose Luca. Mm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Because initially uh, they spoke to me about, they wanted me to think about becoming player manager at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Probably they thought it was time to make a change or maybe they were quite... Uh, inspired my professionalism even though I was going through a difficult situation with the manager so they thought maybe he would be a good guy to lead the team but then uh, I think there was a breakdown in the negotiations with Rude so they wanted me to take over you know Monday uh, uh, three days later yes and um, and I spoke to Lippi about that and they said uh, don't worry just you'll be absolutely fine just relax and then I spent three days looking when when they said to me okay you're going to have the job you're going to start on Monday I spent three days thinking about 
how I wanted the team to train, to play and the organisation. And then I remember Lippi calling me on a Sunday night and said to me, what are you doing? I said, I'm, you know, I've been working for the last 48 hours non-stop on training sessions. And stuff. I said, stop, hang on, hang on. This is not what you need to do. First of all, you need to understand inside yourself what you believe in. What's your philosophy? What is your personality? Okay, you need to you need to find out stuff about yourself. What are your principles? What are the things that you believe in? Mm-hmm. What is your write your own personal constitution? This is what he told me, and then the rest will follow. Stephen Brammer asked a couple of questions. Were there surprises when you were Chelsea manager? Did we ever nearly see Di Canio as a Chelsea player? Did we ever nearly see Maradona as a Chelsea player? No, but Di Canio, yes. We had a conversation both when I was at Chelsea and Attilio Lombardo as well. Uh, that was just before I was fired. I wanted um, a player like Paolo or like Attilio on the flank. Yes. So And then at Watford as well, I had a conversation with Paolo Di Canio but I didn't manage to sign them because they kicked me out before I was capable. After winning several trophies, including a European trophy against our future World Cup winning manager. <laughs> well, it was kind of a shock for me. I remember I was at the training ground. We were five games into the season. We had uh, lost at Bradford, I think, and then a couple of draws at Villa and Newcastle, a draw with Arsenal, I think the win with... West Ham, I don't remember. Anyway, we're not top of the league, but I thought that... Having just won the FA Cup at the end of the previous season. With Manchester United, like a month before. And therefore, they said to me, my assistant manager said to me, look, they want to see you at 3.30 this afternoon back in the office at Stamford Bridge. So I finished my training session, and I thought, oh my God, they want to talk to me about renewing my contract, (laughs) which would have expired at the end of the season. And I was a bit annoyed because I thought, it wasn't the right time for me to sit down with them because we were on top of the league yet, so I wouldn't have had the power mm-hmm. to negotiate, yes, a better contract from a financial point of view, but mainly to say, look, I want to improve the organisation, I want to improve the training facilities, and I wanted to be that guy with enough power to demand that kind of uh, improvement. So I remember driving back to Stamford Bridge in my lovely car and thinking about how to deal with the situation I was thinking let them talk first and then you just say your bit and, and then a bit of negotiation then perhaps you say okay let's see each other <laughs> next week and let's carry on discussions so I, I, I went to the office and I went into the boardroom and it was Ken Bates and Colin Hutchinson the chairman at that time and the managing director and Ken Bates said to me look um, we think you've done a marvellous job and I'm thinking thank you very much and they said but we have decided to make a change so we want to, we thought about releasing you. And then Colin, actually, I was just shocked, honestly, I was stunned. And Colin actually said to me, Luca, you are the one that told me last year that after a few years working with the same group of players, you either change the manager or you change 25 players. And we thought, we cannot change 25 players, so we decided to change you. And I just looked at him and I said to him, uh, Oh, Colin, I can't believe it. I told you about 1,000 things in the last four years and you never listened to one of them. And the only <laughs> bloody thing that you remember that I told you is this one. And then I just, you know, sat back and then I left and I went back home. My wife was my girlfriend at that time and she was away working and my PA was there and I remember sort of crying and she hugged me and it was quite embarrassing. <laughs> but... The first time that happens to you, it's a total shock. And you start doubting about yourself. 
and you think you're not good enough to do the job. But then my advice is to talk to people that has been in that situation before. Mm-hmm. They can tell you that you know, to start doubting about yourself is totally wrong. But you need to ask yourself the hard questions. What did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. Could I have done things differently? And you find the courage to find the right answers. And if you find the right answers, then you will be a better manager the next time you are given the opportunity to manage a football team. There's maybe nothing new to be said about Alex Ferguson. What do you say about him? What, well, how do you I, describe him? It was an inspiration uh, to see him achieving what he did with uh, Manchester United. It was fantastic. And just from speaking to him, he was really willing to share. He, he taught me that uh, as a young manager, you think that if you work 24-7, you're doing the right thing. And if you have a spare minute, you need, just need to watch another videotape of opposite team that you're going to play or you can think about a new training session. And he said to me, Luca, that's wrong. You need to take time to switch off, to recharge your batteries, uh, unwind, if you like. Take something up, play golf, singing lessons, mm. learn how to play piano. Piano for him. Uh, yeah, because then you will be able to go back to the training ground and be fresh enough to be able to analyse because being a football manager is all about analysing. Perfect. So, And the second thing is about handling the players, managing the players. And he said mm-hmm. to me, look, what we need is we want the players' trust and we want the, player, the players to believe in what we do and, and then our job becomes much easier. But he said to me, you cannot demand that unless you first give them your trust and your confidence. So it's actually the other way around. Mm-hmm. And you need to believe that your players are just fantastic and you need to sincerely believe that. Mm-hmm. And you believe in them, you've got confidence in them, you trust them, and then they will end up reciprocating those feelings. This has been a joy. Thank you. Pleasure. Luca, My pleasure. Um, on behalf of everybody who's listened, you've got massive respect from us and you've given us huge enjoyment. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.